The revolution is here. A movement of people free to live, work, and choose. We won't tell you what to think. We just demand that you think for yourself. This is Kibbe on Liberty. Okay, we're almost like in Joe Rogan territory because we're, exactly. we're, we're going into a second hour, but I wanted to talk about something fundamentally different um, because you have been one of the leading econo- economic historians critical of the 1619 Project and yeah. Nicole Hannah, Nicole Hannah Jones, yeah. Thank you, thank you. And I, I've, I've, I've done very little on this subject and I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly schooled in, in critical race theory, but, but yeah. it's becoming something that I think my audience would, would love to learn more about. And, and you've, you've been in the trenches on this for a long time. That is. <laughs> yeah. I remember you shared uh, on your Facebook page a presentation you gave at George Mason University quite some time ago. Yep. Talking about how critical race theory had sort of hijacked the intellectual integrity of of the university system. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if that's how you would say it, but I think it's a, a fair summary of it. So yeah, this this is a subject I've been working on for far longer than the 1619 Project. Uh, so that came out in August 2019. But what I had noticed before that is there, there was a turn, almost an ideological turn, among university faculty, whereas maybe 20 or 30 years ago, uh, people that would identify on the left, they were kind of old guard liberal left, um, what used to be the ACLU types, people that valued free speech and free inquiry and civil rights and civil liberties, and would guard those even if they disagreed with the person that was exercising them from the other side. And that's been largely displaced and supplanted by people that adhere to uh, what we call critical theory ideology. Uh, and it's a, it's a whole class of, uh, of different ways of looking at the world. So there's critical race theory, critical gender theory. Uh, there's even like a, a critical vegan studies, I think, was one of the, uh, uh, the, the subfields that they're trying to develop. But this is a, a much more aggressive version of left-wing ed- ideology that uh, almost embraces as a value that anything on the other side is evil and should be discriminated against and should be written out of the conversation, should be essentially canceled. So I... Um uh, it's been many years since I've I've read the postmodern philosophers, but I I have drawn some sort of line in my head between some of the some of the basic insights of postmodernism and you know particularly like Hans George Gadamer and sure, hermeneutics sure. and stuff like that 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 had a certain humility of trying to figure out what people meant when they said certain words right. and 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 suggesting that that words have context and it's not. It's not simple and objective the way that that we might think about it versus critical theory, which says nothing's true and it yeah. is what I say it is. Or it's nothing's true except for our ideological beliefs that we've imported uh, as priors into the system. That's the, the critical theory approach. And I think this really comes to the roots of critical theory as an offshoot of Marxism. Uh, so in the 1930s, there's a, um, a group of Western Marxists, so they're outside of the Soviet Union sphere, but they're adherents of this, um, this system of thought, this ideology, uh, grows up around the University of Frankfurt. And what they do is they try to, to, to parse the history of philosophy into two sets of theories. Uh, the traditional theory, 
which is descriptive. It often poses as empiricism in their uh, uh, their version of it. Uh, but they say tra- traditional theory upholds the ruling class, upholds the people in power. Critical theory, they claim, is emancipatory. And they mean emancipatory is in liberating the proletariat, liberating the oppressed class, overthrowing the traditional theory. And it's really, what it does is it infuses the way that uh, this approach to philosophy even asks questions. Uh, it's not, are we trying to describe the world as it is? It's, what are we trying to do to change the world? And conveniently, they have this guy, this bearded German guy named Karl Marx that has all the answers ready for them uh, that they've just embraced as like it's a, a scientific truth that the world is, is bending toward. And their goal as academics is to... Uh, basically engage in scholarship that promotes this so-called truth that they've embraced already from Marxism. But it's 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 political in the sense Absolutely. that there's good guys and bad guys. So it's not it's not one set of rules applied to everybody equally at all. Right, right. It's uh we can engage on our side if we were a critical theorist uh, because we're uh, we've we've already made the decision to seek an emancipatory goal, to seek a liberationist goal and done so through our scholarship, through political means, through uh, activist approaches to whatever question we happen to be studying, uh, they, they treat that as that gives them uh, basically a moral superiority over people that are upholding traditional theory. Uh, traditional theory is said to be descriptive in the way it presents itself, but is really seen as like, uh, it's almost like a conspiracy theory approach that they take to it. They say that traditional theory is really just upholding the ruling class, upholding old power hierarchies. And because of that, it is morally unworthy of even being given a, a level playing field of consideration. So I, I sort of somewhat comically ran into this for the first time. I want to say around 2012, I ended up um, on CNN debating Don Lemon mm. about whether or not the Tea Party was racist. Right. And and I, I foolishly accepted that gig, which was perhaps <laughs> me being young and naive. But um, he, he, he got on me for using the phrase colorblind society yeah by which i mean the rules of the land should be um treat everybody the same regardless of the color of your skin and and i I went on to without um citing martin luther king i went on to quote standard martin luther king sure and he was pushing back um and uh it, it was it was shocking to me that the idea that we would judge people based on the content of their character was no longer um, accepted universally from, um, at the time, Don Lemon wasn't as big as he is now, but sure. I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm shocked that you don't, you don't believe the same thing I do on this. Yeah. There's an explicit repudiation. This comes from the critical race theory, which is critical theory methodology applied to race of the notion of a colorblind society. Uh, the, the claim here is that a colorblind society is put forth as a philosophical premise by the traditional theorists to prop up those who are already in power. Uh, therefore, we need to overturn this. So it's it's actually uh, an expression of a repudiation of liberalism, yeah. uh, classical liberalism. You know, a, a Hayekian concept of a generality norm is that there's a universal rule for uh, for all of society. Maybe it's a rule for uh, constraining government. It's a constitutional rule of non-discrimination. But what they're saying is basically a um, an epistemological um, approach that adopts the standpoint 
as the basis of truth rather than trying to find a universal that works for all of human society. So yeah, they, they see colorblindness as uh, directly hostile to critical theory and something that they repudiate, and when they repudiate, they automatically brand it as racist. Yeah. So you, you, you were well-positioned when the New York Times announced the, the 1619 Project, and I guess the first thing was an essay, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, but, but talk a little bit about your research before that, because it gets interesting, particularly sure, in right. the context of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, that is especially interesting in the context of Abraham Lincoln. So um, economic historian, one of the core areas that I've, um, I've always done research on, wrote an entire dissertation on, is 19th century American economic policy which is very closely intertwined with slavery. Uh, so I've worked on slavery for decades. My first academic publications were on the, basically the political economy of slavery. Uh, this is stuff that I was working on as an undergraduate. I wrote a senior thesis on uh, the Civil War era, uh, the, the, the breakdown of the Union over the slavery question. And this is something I've probably published, I think, in excess of two dozen scholarly articles, book chapters, books, on uh, the one area that I really focused in on, and was the subject of my first book, was uh, this weird idea from the 19th century that uh, as slavery was ended in the United States uh, through emancipation, abolition, manumission, whatever you want to uh, um, take as your approach, uh, several people in the 19th century said, well, what do we do with African Americans after they are freed? And one of the so-called solutions was to uh, induce them to move abroad. Uh, this is how Liberia is founded as a country, so that's the most famous example. But by the Civil War, they're also considering the Caribbean, Central and South America. Uh, the idea is that we free the slaves, but we also relocate the former slaves to other, uh, other countries, other parts of the world. And there's all sorts of motives for this that are rooted in at least an anti-slavery sentiment, but it's also a sentiment that believes that there's going to be race problems in the United States afterward if we have a large black population living as uh, free citizens among a, uh, a white majority country. So it's kind of this paternalistic, uh, somewhat racist 19th century way of looking at things. Uh, but I had done uh, several of the major academic it's, it's works. It's pre-progressive before progressivism emerges. It is. It yeah. is. Uh, and, and, you know, and I wrote an entire book on Abraham Lincoln's connections to the colonization movement. Uh, it's probably the first book-length treatment of this specific subject. I've written dozens of academic articles. I wrote the main encyclopedia article for uh, one of the core Civil War encyclopedia texts on the colonization movement. Uh, so this was my bread and butter. This is my research area. Um, so I, I, I come at the 1619 Project as someone who's not only uh, um, working in this field, uh, not only working as a, uh, uh, a commentator in this field, but someone who has done original scholarship uh, going back several decades, uh, two decades of work and dozens of articles on the exact subjects the 1619 Project happened to be writing about. So, and you're... And, and you're, you're the basic punchline of your of your Lincoln research was that he was pro-colonization yeah. probably yeah. until the day he died. Probably until the day he died. And we have uh, pretty clear evidence of this. There was a, uh, a general, Benjamin F. Butler, 
who uh, met with him at the White House, um, as far as we can tell, about three or four days before he was assassinated. And Butler, later in life, writes a memoir. He says, uh, talks about the last time I met President Lincoln before he went to Ford's Theater. And he says, yes, he called me in, and he said, uh, the, the Civil War's coming to an end. They had just won the war. General Lee had surrendered. And he says, uh, General Butler, what do we do next? Um... Uh, I have a, an idea I want to propose to you, and this idea is uh, we take the freed slaves, we recruit the free slaves voluntarily, and we colonize them down in Panama and use them to dig a canal. We put them to work digging a canal, and this will be America's sphere of influence. It's our way of uh, you know, commercially uh, uh, taking control of the hemisphere, but the whole idea is that this is work that we can uh, provide to the freed slaves, and it solves the problem, uh, the racial problem that is likely to follow in the South. So there's pretty clear evidence that Lincoln believed this until the day he died. Yeah, and it, this is like we've we've had this debate just down the street from my house. There is a statue of Abraham Lincoln, and I think it's Logan. What is it called? Is it Abraham Lincoln freeing the slaves? Oh, it's the Emancipation Park. It's in Lincoln Park. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, the, the BLM activists wanted to tear it down. Yeah. And, and I, you know, my, my only beef with tearing down statues is this idea that you would try to erase history that you don't right. like. Right. And, and it would be more honest to look at Lincoln, uh, good Lincoln, bad Lincoln, Absolutely. flawed Lincoln, Lincoln in the context of his era, Lincoln in the, in the context of the politics of his era. And um, when they were debating, I was trying to figure out, you know, I'm, I'm not like a huge Lincoln apologist by sure, any means because sure. he, he did all sorts of interesting things that libertarians <laughs> would be offended by, um, but ultimately settled on um, Frederick Douglass's speech from that day. Yeah. When they um, dedicate the statue. And he, he, he talks about all of Lincoln's flaws. Absolutely. And, and it, this gets to the whole problem with the 1619 project you know it's a worthy conversation to have yeah. we yeah. should be honest and and brutally honest about about our own history with slavery but we can't just make it up right and, right and this was kind of your when you weighed in you said um you said it more elegantly than this but like guys that's you're just making that up that's essentially what happened and I, I mean, I distinctly remember the morning the 1619 Project came out in print. So they put it, it as August 2019. They put a, a big fancy print issue of the New York Times, and I pulled it up on my computer screen that morning. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. They, they've launched a new project to look at the historical legacy of slavery. Here I am as an economic historian that works very heavily in this area. Uh, of course, I'm going to be interested. And I thought initially it was going to be a successor to an earlier project the Times had done. So in between 2011 and 2015, they ran a series called Disunion that commemorated the 150th anniversary of the American Civil War. And it had hundreds of scholars contributed to it. It was looking at uh, the legacy of the Civil War. Slavery is obviously a very prominent part of that. Um, I actually wrote several pieces for it, but, uh, but so did hundreds of other historians, scholars that work in that era. And I thought, okay, well, the New York Times is doing a successor project. Then I start to read it, and I find um, immediately, just off the bat, there are two themes that, sh that stand out to me. One is it's very explicitly ideological. This was not historical analysis. It was more geared to, say, a 2020 
uh, political election than it was to looking at the past. And then the second feature of it is that they asked all sorts of authors to contribute to it that were not really experts in the subject matters that they were writing about, and they made basic fundamental factual errors that were all in the service of these political themes they're trying to prop up. You know, I, I, I had forgotten until today when I was reviewing some of this that this was in the context of, of uh, Trump's reelection, mm-hmm. and and it, from your telling, was was basically a, a political project. Yeah, it's a, it's a opposed, campaign piece. Yeah, um, but but a, a couple of the themes that that are are relevant to those of us that believe in freedom and the, the yeah. market process and and all of that was that the you know the basic argument is that capitalism free market american style constitutional capitalism i don't like to use the c word because i think it's misleading but let's just use it because they're using it um that it doesn't work without the slave economy right right so this is the thing that jumps out i i didn't focus immediately on the nicole hannah jones essay which is the lead essay it's the one that's been the source of most of the controversy it's actually the second essay in the 1619 Project that really caught my attention early on. And this is by a sociologist from Princeton University by the name of Matthew Desmond. And it's the, the title of the essay is basically Capitalism and Slavery. And what Desmond did is he, he basically makes an argument that American capitalism, and by that he means a stand-in for free market, laissez-faire theory, low taxes, low regulation, everything that we as, uh, as economic uh, free market liberals believe in, Um, He says it's infused with the brutality of the slave system. And to make this argument, uh, because he's very clearly trying to discredit capitalism today, and he says this in the piece, he wants uh, things like socialized medicine and higher taxes and wealth redistribution, all the, 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 uh, the standard, fair, progressive left policy agenda. But his way of, of arguing for that is not considering those policies and their merits. It's saying that capitalism itself is tainted from the origin in the United States by being wedded at the hip to slavery. And he even goes so far, at one of the opening lines of this essay, he declares that if you are using a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet in the year of 2019 when he's writing, this traces back to the plantation accounting books. And he declares this as like, that's supposed to discredit Microsoft Excel. Yeah. So I'm reading this and I'm, I'm scratching my head and say, this is an odd claim. So I go to the book that he cites for this claim. It's a, a book by Caitlin Rosenthal called Accounting for Slavery, which is, as the title suggests, it's about the accounting practices on the, uh, the plantations. And it turns out Desmond has actually misread her opening chapter. She says, I'm not writing an origin story of accounting today. I'm not claiming that Microsoft Excel is the, uh, is the successor to the plantation accounting books. Uh, so she announces from, right from the outset of her book that she wants to dispel this notion. He misread it, and he inverted the claim and says Microsoft Excel derives from plantation slavery. Therefore, this is a proof that slavery taints everything. So I've, I've, uh, I've had conversations, uh, not on this show, but other things that we've done at Free the People with some of my progressive friends, uh, one of whom introduced me to this concept that that work is is really a form of slavery. Right. Uh, wage. Right. They have a phrase for it that that I, I didn't even understand the context of what it meant. And and but since I've heard like AOC yeah. uh, talk about the fact that there are certain jobs that are uh, essentially slavery. Yeah. Wage slavery or it's exploitation. And yeah. There's, uh, 
And it's, um, again, a, a bizarre new concept. And, you know, if Walter Williams was alive, he would, uh, he would, he would, he would be <laughs> raging, he would this, yeah. raging against, because, of course, uh, working for yourself is how you, you yeah. get independence and, and liberate. But this is part of this ideology. It absolutely is. And it's an unwitting part of this ideology. Uh, it actually has its precursors, not in the historical left uh, per se, is not in the, the Marxian left that they all draw on, although they do adhere to that ideology. Uh, these are arguments that are basically recycled um, almost unintentionally from the pro-slavery theorists of the mid-19th century. Uh, so one of the guys that I, I get into in my critique, uh, there was a, uh, a theorist from uh, Virginia by the name of George Fitzhugh, and he, he wrote in the 1850s, he's seen as one of the, uh, the premier pro-slavery guy that's arguing against people like Frederick Douglass. Uh, he actually goes to the North a couple times and debates abolitionists presenting the pro-slavery case, and they're, uh, they're, they're trying to tear him down for those reasons. Uh, but Fitzhugh... The core of his thesis is an assault not just on abolitionism, it's an assault on the notion of free labor. So he declares that the laborers of the North are basically wage slaves of the capitalists. Uh, This guy is a classical anti-capitalist. He even develops arguments, he writes about a decade before Marx uh, pens Capital, uh, but he develops arguments that directly anticipate Marx's line of argument in Capital. He says that uh, the owners of capital are appropriating uh, from their workers the surplus value of their production. And this is all from the wage labor system. The weird twist on Fitzhugh, he says, well, the solution to all of this is we eliminate the capital owner labor relationship, the uh, the bourgeois proletariat relationship in the Marxian terms, yeah. by simply owning the workers. Uh, we, we need to have like a medieval feudal style lord of the plantation manor that, that owns everyone else and provides order and direction and care and well-being. It houses them, it clothes them, it feeds them, it solves what he says are the exploitative problems of capitalism. So uh, the, the Lincoln story is interesting to me and your work on that is is a little bit comical because yeah. <laughs> Nicole Hannah Jones had actually cited your work uh, positively, um, sort of sort of puncturing some holes in this mythology about about Lincoln as yeah. sort of savior um, who had no flaws, and of course that's not true. Um, but then she discovered you wrote it. Right, right. So this is a great story. Uh, so one of the first things the 1619 Project comes under fire on, I had been focusing on the economics, but other historians focus on Nicole Hannah-Jones's essay. And it's a, it's a sweeping kind of summary essay of American history trying to recontextualize um, everything around the, the history of slavery. Uh, so, of course, she's digging into the American Revolution, she's digging into the Civil War, and one of the issues she raises is the fact that Lincoln was a colonizationist, a supporter of colonization. And there was an older school in the history profession that I had directly challenged a decade ago when I started working on this uh, that tried to discount his colonizationism. They tried to claim, well, this is just uh, a political ploy in the service of greater goals of emancipation. He wasn't really serious about it. Uh, they tried to do kind of, kind of like the Anthony Fauci thing. It's like they say they claimed that Lincoln told the lie that he was in favor of colonization uh, just to lead the public over to his side of emancipation. Yeah. 
Uh, so that was really popular in there. And what I did in my work is I actually found uh, private correspondence, private diplomatic records that contradicted this whole story. It showed that Lincoln was, in fact, very serious about colonization. He signed agreements privately with the British government and with governments of other Caribbean colonies, Caribbean holdings, to prepare for the colonization of the slaves after the Civil War. Uh, so it, it really kind of just explodes this whole mythology that had built up around that one area of Lincoln. And I'm not saying I'm an anti-Lincoln guy. I'm not a pro-Lincoln guy either. I'm kind of a middle-of-the-road uh, scholar on this. I see the, 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 the good things and the bad things that he did. But uh, my work was uh, focused on the fidelity to the historical evidence. Yeah. So 1619 Project actually draws on some of the colonization uh, uh, studies that I, I had worked on. And after it comes out in print and Nicole Hannah-Jones is taking heat and flack from other historians that are saying, no, Lincoln wasn't a true colonizationist, she starts citing my book by name, sending like tweeting out the Amazon link and say, read this book, um, uh, focus on this book because it shows that I am in fact right on Lincoln. Uh, she also found um, articles that I had written for the New York Times, her own employer, uh, laying out my evidence on Lincoln and colonization uh, four or five years before she wrote on this. Uh, so she tweets this out. She's citing it everywhere. Um, I noticed a few of it. I, I actually had the sense to screen cap it because she deletes a lot of her tweets after the fact. Uh, but then somebody came along and pointed out to her, I think it was Alex Tabarrok from GMU, uh, after she tweeted out a link to my book and says, you know who the author of that is? It's Phil Magnus, the guy that wrote uh, this devastating critique of uh, the other parts, the economic parts of the 1619 Project. And then she goes completely silent. And a few weeks to a few months later, every time my name starts coming up again, she completely does an about-face, like a 180, and starts attacking my credentials. Yeah. drops any mention of my work on Lincoln and colonization. And then the most recent twist of this is the 1619 Project published a new expanded book-length edition. She went through and she revised all the sections that previously cited uh, or previously referenced what Lincoln did on colonization uh, and changed them. So now she adopts kind of this older line. And instead of citing anything to me, it goes to the secondhand account by Ibram X. Kendi, the critical race theory, anti-racism activist uh, that he had written about Lincoln several years ago. That's not really a scholarly work. It's more of a, uh, uh, a popular press type of a uh, political account of this. So uh, here you have the, the, uh, the organizer, the chief editor of the 1619 Project, was originally relying on my research, my scholarship. She found out that I was a critical uh, writer on other aspects of the 1619 Project and has pure retribution for the fact that I had dared to criticize her. Uh, I had to be silenced and excised from the 1619 Project. Well, because it's not a pursuit of, of historical knowledge. It's, it's a it's political agenda that, that, that matters. And, and let, let's, let's extrapolate out. But, but, the, but the bottom line, and this is... Um, um, true to the critical race theory framework is that the system is designed for white people to yeah. benefit white people at the expense of everybody else. It's, it's white privilege, so the Declaration yeah. and the Constitution and, and our whole system of, of, of law is, is fundamentally corrupt. Right. Not right. just law, but it's like... Tainted by slavery, tainted the, by the racism. The capitalist system. And, and part of the 1619 Project, um, explicitly, I don't know from day one, you can tell me, but it was a curriculum. Yes. 
that yes. they they were they were uh, pushing to high schools. Yeah. So hand in hand, the day that this comes out in the New York Times, uh, the uh, the Pulitzer Center put together a high school curriculum that was built around the essays in the 1619 Project, and they launched it simultaneously. Uh, with the full knowledge of the New York Times, with uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones promoting this thing. So it was intended all along to be adopted in the classrooms um, as an explicit part of what the Times was doing. They've, uh, again, dumped uh, untold millions of dollars into promoting this effort. Uh, I think they even bought a Super Bowl ad in uh, 2021, uh, the first Super Bowl after the 1619 Project came out. As a, as a business model, like, are they selling the curriculum? Like, why would they spend that much money on this? Uh, I think it's ideological more than anything. Um, yeah. it, it doesn't seem to be that they're they're making a lot of money off of that specific angle of it, although um, I think they are getting money off of the book sales out of the... Sure. Uh, yeah, so but not, other, not, that, not that kind of money. Right, yeah. right. Fascinating. And, yeah. And I, and I bring that up because obviously we're we're now debating um, not only in Virginia but across the country um, whether or not critical race theory should be part of the curriculum yeah. in in K through twelve yeah K twelve which these these are government run Absolutely. high schools um, these these are not this is not a private public square um, and hasn't she come back and said. No, we're not. We're not trying to get this in the high schools. Well, that's the oddity of it. Uh, the 1619 project it, it pivots between the different things that it wants to be. So uh, when she wants to put it forth as scholarly history, she claims that she's writing history. When she comes under attack from historians that are pointing out that you're playing fast and loose with the facts, she says, "Oh, it's just journalism. This is metaphors. These are uh, uh, descriptive commentaries. It's not fully history." Well, they're doing the same thing with the curricular purposes of this. So even though they launched their own curriculum the day the 1619 Project appears in print, they've pivoted back and forth over whether they want this to be an educational tool for classroom adoption or not. Uh, So at the same time that Nicole Hannah-Jones and several of the other Times editors are railing against the criticism of critical race theory that's coming out of the political sphere, uh, they're also... Uh, pushing efforts to purchase copies of the 1619 Project book to donate to schools. Yeah. So there's a real mix of messages here, and they don't seem to really recognize the inconsistency between the two of them. Or maybe they didn't think they would get caught. Exactly. Or, or maybe they didn't think it would be politically controversial. And that that's sort of one of the upsides of, and you and I have talked um, on many other episodes about the the horrible unintended consequences of lockdowns. And, Absolutely. And all yeah. that, but... Perhaps one of the upsides particularly comes with education because the for all of the horrible things that the teachers' unions have done yeah. to children with masking and remote learning, um, one of the upsides perhaps is that a lot of parents for the first time saw some of the stuff exactly that it. their kids were learning, and that's created this political backlash. Yeah, um, And I've, I've seen like beautiful speeches from, from black parents at town hall meetings saying, you're teaching my kid that he can never succeed because inherently the system won't let him. And, right, it, right. and they're, they're, they're objecting first. They're like, this is bullshit. Yeah, yeah. It's the effect of putting all of classroom teaching, classroom instruction online or over a Zoom link where the kid's sitting in front of a computer watching their teacher and the parents are... are, are in the room sometimes, and they're, they're, they're seeing and hearing uh, what is really substandard curriculum 
uh, with a clear, explicit 2020-focused political message, even though it's, it's masquerading as history. Uh, and you see this out of the 1619 Project. You see it out of other elements of the curriculum that had been uh, built around infusing critical theory into K-12 through education. And this is a long-going movement. It's something that's not uh, new to 2019, 2020 under the lockdowns. Uh, really, it was the late 1960s. There was a, uh, a critical theorist that operated out of the same kind of Marxian, revolutionary, emancipatory uh, framework uh, by the name of uh, Paulo Freire. Who's, uh, he writes a book called the, the Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And it's this uh, dense, like, overbearing Marxist tract about how pedagogy, classroom instruction itself, is in the service of the elite and needs to be overturned. Uh, it turns out this thing has be, has become, over the 40 or so years since it was published, uh, one of the most frequently assigned texts in schools of education, college schools of education. And it's diffused down into classroom instruction. And we start seeing some of the fruits of that in uh, the adoption of these ideas as a way of looking at history. Uh, the critique I make of it is not so much that uh, we don't want to ban all this stuff. I think it's really misguided to say we should ban certain ideas from the classroom, and I've opposed some of these bills that have come out of legislatures. But what I do say, and I think this holds up for uh, the critical theory world in, in general, and particularly critical race theory, it's a very low rigor flimsy form of scholarship that is just infused uh, with heavy ideology and tends to be very light on facts, very light on evidence. Uh, so it's a bad way of looking at the past. It's a way of taking the past and turning it into a political weapon for the present. Uh, and that's really the critique that I would make of it. Uh, uh, I think if you evaluate it on its merits against other ways of looking at the past, it loses every single time because it's just so flimsy. Yeah. I mean, I... I don't know exactly what I think, but I, I think I might be more sympathetic to quote banning it because banning is not ban <laughs> banning is not banning when it comes to um, a government school curriculum is unfortunately always based on politics. Yeah, well, push, push expenditure of public resources, yeah. uh, and, and I would support completely defunding it. I yeah, don't, I mean, I wouldn't support funding. So we we probably agree it's a yeah. semantics thing. Um, yeah, because I. I, I do think that these are ideas worth debating, um, but it doesn't sound like they want to debate. They don't. Uh, they want to declare themselves as true and right, and everyone else is racist or sexist or evil or uh, is on the side of the, uh, the oppressors, is on the side of traditional theory that's upholding the regime. I've noticed these talking points again and again and again, yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't really matter what you're arguing with, but you're, you're inevitably a white supremacist, a racist, and um, for the longest time, I didn't pay attention to this, but they've they've kind of radicalized me. Like when they when yeah. they called Joe Rogan a racist, I'm like, okay, you you've sort of delegitimized the accusation. And by the way, when you do that, you give safe haven to real racists. Right, right. And that's that's sort of the it nefarious. Cheapens the term. Yeah, it, it 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 more than cheapens the term. It makes it irrelevant. So like we can't. It's it's hard to call out real racism. Yeah which is a real problem and, and something that we should all denounce um, when everybody is is a racist just based on the color of their skin. Yeah, yeah. This goes back my, my own work before the 1619 Project was even a thing. I've worked very heavily in the history of public choice economics. 
And if you look back to the 1950s and 60s when public choice theory is coming into its own, there's a very prominent strain of that that is anti-discriminatory. It, uh, it comes from Gordon Tulloch, and uh, he analyzes the institution of slavery. Uh, Bill Hutt uh, writes a book about South African apartheid as a feature of political capture of the South African government by racists and, uh, and labor unions, white labor unions. And Walter Williams wrote a book. Absolutely. Prob- a lot based on how exactly yeah. so it's, it's, it's all in that same vein so there's a very vibrant literature here that says we can diagnose institutionalized manifestations of racism uh, Gary Becker and Milton Friedman both work on this in the context of discrimination in the United States so it's a very vibrant tradition and it's actually empirically robust if you look at the evidence it lines up and it explains the story which also gives us an answer how to fix it how do we address segregation yeah, yeah. Uh, the problem with critical theory, and this comes straight out of Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, who's one of the founding fathers of critical race theory. So she wrote a, a uh, this horrific little book in 2019, it comes out, and it says, well, public choice theory is a manifestation of white supremacy and therefore should be discarded entirely. And her only citation to sustain this is Nancy McLean's Democracy in Chains, this uh, this ridiculous, discredited conspiracy theory of a book that tries to brand public choice theory as like inherently segregationist. Yeah, a hit job on my professor, James Buchanan, Absolutely. Yep. from back in the day. Um, and I, I sat through his classes, and so I don't, I I, she I, learned agrarian poetry and, yeah. and John C. Calhoun secretly fed to you by all these. <laughs> it's 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 ridiculous, but it, the accusation stands. Um, let's let's wrap it up there because sure. uh, I wanted to to make sure that that uh, folks started thinking about this stuff. I'm I'm sure my audience is way ahead of me on this, but give us give us a sense. Uh, where can we get your book? What's your yeah. book called? And and all the work you do at AIR. Yeah, so the book is called A 1619 Project, A Critique, and it's available on Amazon and all the usual online booksellers. Uh, It is a collection of my essays basically dissecting the different uh, chapters and and components of the 1619 Project that have problems associated with them. Cool. And uh, broader uh, AIR, as my viewers know, have have been heroic on challenging lockdowns. Uh, Where do we find them? Yeah, so AIER.org uh, is where I publish most of my short pieces. Uh, so it's a um, basically a repository of research on that. And I, I, I do all my commentaries on anything from the 1619 Project uh, to um, historical economic policy, taxation, lockdowns, you name it. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed that show, make sure that you like and subscribe. Click the little bell so that you get notifications. And if you consume this via podcast, go wherever you want to go. We're everywhere. Kibbe on Liberty. The revolution starts now.